Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Ooh, is that pod on? Welcome to the 16th edition of Next Big Hits Broadway Bullet. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we've got a lot of fantastic stuff for you this episode. The queen of cabaret, Andrea Marcovici, is here with us today for the program, and we'll hear a couple songs from her. There's also the Christmas and Hanukkah, both-themed review that time of the year. We've got an interview with the cast members and a couple songs recorded live at Broadway Bullet Studios. We have participants from the plays To Be Loved, which is Kabuki-inspired, and art people about the everyday lives of artists here to discuss their shows. And we also have Billionaires for Bush talking about their holiday show, Dick Cheney's Holiday Spectacular 2006. And we can't forget Marty Cooper in On the Positive Side, he gives Spring Awakening his review. Do you think he'll like it? And a brand new feature, if you're trying to spread the word and some people just can't figure out how to download a podcast, we have a phone number where people can call in to hear the latest episode. Just dial 1-213-514-5315 and you can hear the latest edition of Broadway Bullet every week. Not only that, the pound and star keys will move you back and forth by a minute every time if you want to move to a later or earlier portion in the show. Keep those reviews coming in iTunes. They really help keep our featured slot placed well so everybody can find the show. And we're going to move on and talk to the people involved with our first production. Japanese culture meets the modern culture and the future, and kabuki theater stylings are merged with modern theater stylings in a new play called To Be Loved. We've got three of the people involved here with us today. How are you guys doing? Hi, good. Good. Thank you for having us. Want to introduce yourselves and say what you're doing with the show? My name is Elizabeth Sugarman, and I am an actress. I play Anon. And I am Alex DeFazio. I am the playwright. And I am Jody Person, and I am directing the piece. Now, with this, this is adapted from an old play, I understand, Alex. Yes. It's not quite a translation. It's, it's sort of a free-form adaptation inspired by the play. It was written in 1813. It's called The Scarlet Princess of Edo. Actually, a lot of contemporary writers, playwrights, I think, are attracted to it. I know David Henry Huang has done a version of it. In an operatic format. In an operatic format, yeah. And it's a very it's a very timely story, I think, of a very religious man, a monk, who is in love with a young boy and whose desires are at odds with his religious beliefs. And he suffers greatly from that conflict, as do all of the people around him. And the monk decides he, he needs to end this affair, and the boy kills himself. And then eight years later, the monk is faced with what he thinks is the reincarnation of the boy in the body of a woman. Which is me. Which is you. <laughs> and so he's faced with a number of dilemmas. I mean, the, there are a lot of circumstantial things. The woman also happens to be a prostitute. And in this world that the play takes place in, there's a great deal of human trafficking. People own each other. She's owned by a man who is certainly not going to let her go. But the biggest challenge is, is probably just that she's a woman that he he sees her, she has a woman's body, which is great for him religiously. It means that he can be unsinful, if that's a word. But unfortunately, a gay guy doesn't know what to do with a vagina. 
<laughs> that really, that's it in a nutshell right there. Says the director. <laughs> Just adding some humor. There is humor in the piece. It's not it sort of, yes, I'm making it seem very dark. It really is, um, you know, it is kind of a comedy <laughs> in a very dark way. Um, yes. A tragic comedy. A tragic comedy. Yeah, because he doesn't know what to do with her. He he loves the soul he sees inside of her, which belongs to this boy that he lost, but he doesn't have the faintest idea how to connect to her physically or completely in any kind of love he has. I also think that he feels it's his chance to do re- have redemption for his actions. Yeah. With her, and he doesn't know what to do with it. Right, because there's that whole possibility of childbirth, which is so important in the Bible, and the idea that, yeah. you know, if I can be with this woman, then we can have kids. Which so, is a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Problems everywhere. <laughs> what are some of the biggest uh, directorial and acting challenges in, in merging these two styles of, because you keep a lot of it in a very kabuki vein. You can take it away first, Elizabeth, on the acting uh, side, if you'd like. <laughs> um, I guess the biggest challenge is, you know, we're taught today as actors to make it as realistic as possible, to be the realism of emotion, emotional journeys of the characters, and to make that real for the audience. And then when you throw in a kabuki element, to have stylized physicality, costumes, as well as some of the language is, is stylized, to try to make that real, but yet not try to take away from the fact that there is a style that's important to the piece. So finding that balance of, you know, a beautiful stylized piece, but yet what we're accustomed to, to have those two very important elements and to sort of blend them, but make them very separate. And as far as directing goes, it's really a matter of time because there's so much time that needs to be spent on the realistic part of it. What is the intention? What are the circumstances? And you feel like you don't have enough time to do enough style work. So it's always, it's really the balancing act with time. Time is the issue, I feel. Definitely. I don't know if there'll ever be enough time to get, I mean, all of it. I mean, it's so dense and it goes back so far. And we're looking at videos and pictures and, and paintings and, you know, there's there's music involved. And there's just, there's so much involved in this world. We're trying to keep it as simple and clear as possible. It, it's interesting. It's wonderful. And it, it's working, which is what the amazing part is, is that you would think with all this information, it would get muddled and lost, but still the storyline and the characters are really what comes through. And you don't, it doesn't lose it. It, it's, it just enhances it. It makes mm. it a really unique experience. And the actors are loving to get such juicy work. They totally are. You know, one of the actresses, and Alex, you can close your ears to this, Kelly Marcus, she's like, okay, here we come into another day of rehearsal, the seven layers of Alex DeFazio. <laughs> um, and it, it is. There's so many different layers, and which ones do you play up, and which ones do you go with? And it's really hard to make those decisions to be nice and clear and simple. It's true. It's, it's so true. easy to be complex with this play. It is. It's really easy to intellectualize it and analyze it and there's so many options that each character could take. I mean, there's no way that there's like one clear decision as, as far as the character goes. There's 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 so much, and that's it's so playful. Like you get so much fun playing with it because there's no right way. And so it's really you know all the actors are really all invested and involved and just have so much fun with each other because we're all on this journey. We all are like, okay, we're gonna try it a different way. We're gonna try it this way, and you do it this way. I'll try it, and it's you know. But meanwhile, keeping the atmosphere of kabuki in all of it. It's amazing. It's so huge. Now, I can't imagine what it is about this story that could resonate with a modern audience. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but there's more than just, you know, the the monk and the boy part of it. I mean, the character that owns 
um, Elizabeth's character in Nan is this guy Dis, and he's just come back. Well, he he fought in the war, and his his body has been blown to bits. Oh, well, and we haven't been, said that yet, though. We haven't said there's been a war. We didn't say that. No. Um, <laughs> well, that's, I'm putting it in now. So okay. there's this war, and um, you know he was ripped apart by a bomb or some sort of shrapnel or something, and he had to be put back together again. And, you know, he's just barely being held together. Physically and emotionally. Yes, completely. <laughs> and so you have that, that idea of our Iraq veterans coming home and, and what will their lives be like after this. And the other idea, which I think is the most brilliant, is that this bomb has gone off and it's taken all the color out of the world. And to me, that sort of symbolizes, you know, loss of certain freedoms, you know, the cost of, you know, traveling in airplanes. There's all these different costs that when a bomb goes off. And it, I think that bomb is more metaphorical than it is mm-hmm. an actual bomb. Well, but there's, there's, I mean, there are also some political references in terms of the way the world is framed. I mean, at the time I, I started writing it, it was, let's see, well, of course, there was, there was the Patriot Act and there was the amendment to ban gay marriage that was being talked about. There was just, you know, I, I think a, a lot of us who are concerned about some of the things that are going on in, in the world today are, are very concerned about this, this sense of surveillance and the way history is being monitored and points of views are being monitored. And so really one of the things that's so tragic for this, this character of the monk is that he's, he's a very literate man. He's, he's a very artistic man. He, he knows things about the history of this world we live in, about our civilization, about the Renaissance, about human impulses toward beauty and optimism and understanding. And he's really quite alone in this world and having access to any of that information. Most of the other characters are younger than he is. They have shorter memories than he does. And they're really sort of just living moment to moment in a universe that's really devoid, I think, of any promise aside from money. I think making money is what drives everybody. Yeah, I was going to say that. The finances, the economic freedoms that come with having money and the personal freedoms that are lost when you don't are, Mm -hmm. I mean, they're so apparent and so obvious in this piece. Right. And then you have North Korea and Abu Ghraib. I remember our first read-through was when, you know, this whole thing with North Korea came out. They had, did they have nuclear weapons and did they do the test? Or they were working for it, right, did they do tests? And it was so ominous that we're doing this play and the whole world is created from this bomb that's gone off. And, you know, we come in with these newspapers. We're like, oh, my God, what's happening in the world? What is going on? What is going to happen? What could happen? It was just such an amazing way to start this because it was just so ominous. Like, oh, wow, this could really happen. This could be really bad. And the amazing thing about the play is it's not didactic in any way. It never says what you should do, how you should go about doing it. It is just... There's no right and wrong. Right. There's no right and wrong. It's just a story that goes on and you take from what you want to get from Mm -hmm. it in the end, which I think is a really great theater piece. I mean, I, I put it towards sort of like The Crucible, maybe? Ugh, I don't want to <laughs> There's a right that. and wrong in The Crucible. Yeah, there's yeah. a right and wrong in The Crucible. <laughs> there's a right and wrong but in The, the Crucible. Does not always di- it doesn't feel really didactic, though. It, it feels, feels very really didactic. Well, it no, feels really didactic. As you're going along in the beginning. <laughs> this is a playwright talking, though. So I, mean, <laughs> I don't think it's that didactic. <laughs> it's a brilliant play. but no. But it's How many a- more times can we say didactic? Yes. Didactic. <laughs> it's my favorite word. <laughs> No. <laughs> I should say, though, I mean, I, I love each of these characters I felt really connected to and really close to as I was writing it. And there is one character who, the only character in the play who has money and who has privilege and um, who uses that privilege to 
control other people, and it would have been really easy to make that character sort of the, the nemesis of the production. And she is, she is in a way, but she's also, she's, she's really human. In fact, I think I feel connected to her character maybe more than a lot of the others, just because here she has everything that all of, that most of the other characters in the play want. Yeah, I wish we had. And clearly she's not happy, and clearly, you know, she still lacks the emotional fulfillment that all of them lack. It's a fun night out at the theater. It's a fun <laughs> night out. Well, when and where can they catch it? They can catch it at, let's see, someone else. It's Shishama. 42nd Street <laughs> at Chashama between 3rd and 2nd Avenues. So it's really easy to get to. It's like a block and a half away from Grand Central Station. Yeah, and it opens November 30th and runs through December 23rd. It plays every night, but Tuesdays and Wednesdays at 8 p.m., there are Saturday nat- matinees at 2 p.m. on the 9th, 16th, and 23rd. And tickets are available at smarttix.com. Can you tell that he does our marketing also? <laughs> yeah. Um, we're a small Would you like me company. to say that faster? And you can play it after advertisements. <laughs> <laughs> it's November 30th through December 23rd at Shishama. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for coming down and chatting with Broadway Bullet. Wish you the best of luck with your production. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. How many times are you sick of hearing it's that time of the year? Well, I believe a show here has addressed that fact by naming it that time of the year, a Christmas and Hanukkah review featuring all new songs. We've got several members of the production here with us in the room to kind of chat about the show. How's everybody doing? Good. Thank you. Okay, round round very fast. We got a lot of people here. Who is everybody? What are you doing? Aaron McGuire. I'm Jonathan Rayson. I'm Bridget Byrne. I'm actually covering Jonathan Rayson in the show. You'll never fit into my eyes. I'm Nick Verena. I'm Annie Pasqua. I'm the musical director and orchestrator. And she's also going to be playing the piano for our live cuts here in the studio. So first off, I guess, why do we need a new musical? around Christmas. Let's switch it up. I mean, all the things that are on Broadway right now, if I see one more Christmas carol regionally... That Dickens has made enough money. (laughs) Enough. Is he dead? I think so. I think oh, no, it's awkward. A couple years ago. But he comes um, back around this time every year to collect royalties. <laughs> Seriously, how many times can you see the Rockettes kick? Really? I know. Right? Give them something new. And the Grinch... Yes, well, this is its first year. Everybody knows the story. So this is a situation where we have a bunch of songs that range from wacky zany to sweet and touching, and it offers people something different to look at. We've seen it all before. You haven't seen that time of the year! I think it's also time for some new music. We've all grown up with the same Christmas carols and Hanukkah songs, and this really offers a fresh new array of songs for us to light the candle and trim the tree to, and it's exciting. I guess it's an important point, too, is that you do actually have both Hanukkah and Christmas songs for (laughs) all faiths. Are there any uh, Kwanzaa? We, oh, we, we, we tried to get some lines written in. Right that's Act yeah. 3, but it ran too long. Could <laughs> you, you feel how awkward the room just got? Sorry, Kwanzaa. <laughs> Wherever you are. <laughs> yeah, and it's not just about, you know, the, the religious songs or Deck the Halls. It's about other trials and tribulations of the holidays, like husbands who don't know what to get for their wives and people who eat too, feel like they eat too much and around the holidays. relationships right. at Christmas. and There's character songs as well. It's not just kind of like... I'm gonna come in and sing sing a song about Christmas. There's, yeah, it's funny and it's like you said, and touching and. Yeah, we've sort of run the gamut. There's something for everybody, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, before we continue, why don't we uh, do one of the songs live from the show? I will be singing. What song am I singing, Annie? It's called Veronica. Veronica. It's what yes. you really want. Yes. Hanukkah has always been my favorite time of year, cause I get presents eight days in a row. 
And now it's mid-December and the holiday is here. I should be all excited, but I feel so, I don't know. I'll be getting just the right computer games and stuff. I gave a detailed list to mom and dad. So why is it that suddenly those things are not enough? Why did I wake up this morning feeling so sad? I guess I'm just a little bit upset. Cause what I really want, I know I'll never get. I want Veronica for Hanukkah. The girl who sits in homeroom between Diane and Tom. Give me Veronica. Give a blazer power warriors on CD-ROM. She's probably as good as Kevin Donaldson at sports. And you should see the way she climbs a tree. Her name is even awesome. Veronica Schwartz. If only she would be my girl, how perfect life would be. I want Veronica. Trade my rollerblades to have her there for all eight nights. Give me Veronica for Hanukkah so I can see her smiling tinsel teeth reflect the bright menorah. Should I ask her out? Should I take the chance? Would she go with me Sunday night? try to pass her a note in social studies class. Michael could get it to Chris Mangione, who'd give it to Laura to pass. Or maybe at lunch, if we are online, I could ask her face to face. But I could just see myself spilling the french fries all over the place. I could call her up after school and ask if she'd be free. But what if she hangs up when she finds out it's me? Oh, I want Veronica for Hanukkah. I really, 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 really do. Give me Veronica. To get another gift my whole life through But Hanukkah is not about to see another miracle come true oh, Veronica Veronica Talented. <laughs> is it fun singing a bunch of new songs and not having White Christmas in there? It is. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. That yeah. White Christmas show. 
<laughs> we don't need another choral arrangement of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And we have some wonderful musicians playing with us as well. Yeah, great. So we band. have a um, wonderful player, percussionist, and a reed player. Mm -hmm. So we get a nice color to all the songs. Who are the composers for the new songs in the show? Variety um, of composers yes. to yes. lyricists. Yes, the lyricists are the common bond, and there's all kinds of, of assorted composers. So, Which is cool, because then you get a whole bunch of different styles in there. Basically, they wrote a bunch of lyrics for potential songs and gave it to about seven different composers, seven I think. Eight. Yeah, seven, seven, seven or eight different mm -hmm. people so that they could write up their own. And the lyricists are Kleban Award winners, Lawrence Holtzman and Felicia Needleman. Did mm -hmm. you hear that plug, guys? I said Love it. you, Cleveland. <laughs> and it's directed by Annette Jolas. How can they go see it? At the York Theater. York um, Theater. Elevator we run through New Year's Eve. <laughs> through Christmas Eve, for sure. Definitely yes. through Christmas Eve. Possibly through New Year's Eve. Or visit us on YouTube. <laughs> yes. yes, we just oh, did yeah, a whole bunch of clips, clips on yeah, YouTube. Yeah, if, you if you go to YouTube and type in York Theater as one oh, word, word, you'll get a few clips from the show and some interviews from the cast. And there's a wonderful electric train display right next to our theater, so it's a good holiday experience for everybody. Well, I want to thank everybody for coming down as you get ready for the show. I know we're going to do one more song here live in the studio, and who's going to be singing it? And That song? would be me. I'm going to be singing it. Who are you? What? Uh, who am I? I'm Bridget Byrne. <laughs> um, and this is a little ditty called, called, I'm sorry, <laughs> it's called Country Christmas. Best of luck with the show. Thanks for coming down, guys. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. For almost seven years now, I've been living in the city. I would say New York has come to feel like home to me. Sometimes I forget that I'm a country girl from Nashville. Well, 90 miles from Nashville. In the hills of Tennessee. Around this time of year, I start to feel a bit nostalgic. I miss the smell of Mama's Christmas cooking in the air. So when she called and asked if I was coming home for Christmas, I smiled and told her not to worry. I'd be
sick to death of having to make up those damned excuses Like when my folks were visiting and came an hour early And I said, Ma, you see, we just don't get enough hot water That's why I'm naked in the shower with my roommate, Shirley Oh, Mama just smiled and said, Oh, hi, I'm Ruth They just didn't have the brains to see the simple truth. But I'm coming out for Christmas. Daddy'll choke on Mama's pecan balls. But my new bride to be and Walk in and dike the halls. As you've heard some live recordings from the studio, I thought I'd let everybody know that I am indeed available for recording services if you're looking for something that doesn't need to break the bank and a producer who's not looking to milk the most hours out of you as possible. If you're good at getting something down in one or two takes, we have a special right now for live recording. You can do three songs for $75. We've also got some great other options. I work predominantly on short-term projects, so you can come into the studio and leave with a finished package. Vocal production voiceover demos, song demos, and vocal coaching. For more complete information, you can go to copperheads.com, that's copperheads with a Z, or you can go to broadwaybullet.com, and there's a link near the top of the page that says recording services. Oh yeah, and when you contact me, say you heard it at Broadway Bullet, because that $75 price is a discount from what's listed on the website for our listeners. I know many of our listeners are directly related and involved in theater, and for those that aren't, you still might find a lot of interesting items in this new play, Art People. We have the director and two of the actors from Art People here with us in the studio today. How are you? Fine. Great. Does everybody want to take a quick second and introduce yourselves? I'm Don Harvey. I'm one of the actors. I'm Tony Giordano. I'm the director. Hi, my name is Mihaela Mihut. I am one of the actors. I guess first off, in a nutshell, kind of, what is Art People about? I'm going to guess the title sums it up pretty well. but Maggie Lieb, the playwright, has created a story that represents every type of artist, uh, all the people in America who are, some of them would-be artists, some of them successful artists. Six wonderful actors play about 45 different characters in 13 scenes that represent what happens when they're at home, what happens when they're trying to pay their bills, what happens when they're trying to have a relationship that works, what happens when their art is frustrating to them, what happens, Mia plays a mother of a daughter who is a performance artist, when her daughter goes out in front of the world and reveals all the truth about what went wrong with her mother's marriage and life, etc. So it's a humorous and dramatic and these six actors are like a great variety show. They're fantastic to watch. Now, I'm, I'm guessing that you guys are actually art people yourselves <laughs> in, your, <laughs> in your lives. Playing these roles, do any of the scenes or situations hit a little bit too close to home? Oh, yeah. I was actually in a relationship for a long time, and she complained that I constantly <laughs> talked about other people's work and criticized other people's work. And uh, that one of the characters I'm playing is, has a, a penchant for that. 
Uh, it's, you know, just really sounds very familiar to me. you have any similar stories, Mia? I think that what's so amazing about this wonderful thing that we do, acting, that's what I'm talking about, is that every time that you're put in a situation playing a character, even though you do not realize to begin with that you might have something similar that the character has, you discover very early on that a big part of you is the character for each of the characters that I'm doing, mm -hmm. which is really so amazing. It's discovering yourself as a human being in those characters. So you are, parts of you are the character, which is wonderful. Mia has actually just described the whole point of the play. <laughs> because what the playwright is trying to say is, and he says it at the end of the show, why do we all do what we do and work so hard at it when so much of it is difficult and there's so much suffering involved? And the answer that the actors actually say to the audience is, we do it because then we know who we are. That's mm -hmm. what art does for the world. Not just for the artists, but for the people who go to, to experience art. Yeah, has there been any therapeutic effect participating in this show? For me, it's always. I mean, for me, that's why I don't have to go see a psychiatrist, because I act. <laughs> if, I, if I stop doing this, I would have to. I would be in a lot of trouble. Because <laughs> I think, to me, again, I studied at the actor studio, which has to do a lot with Strasbourg. And what I, what I believe in for myself, because everybody sees it in a different way, of course, but what I believe in is that you, the actor, by doing the characters, become a better person. So if you don't get off of the stage every night being just this much a better person, then it means that you haven't done your job for yourself and then for the people who are watching or... You know, I, it's hard for me to describe because I don't speak English. As everybody. <laughs> oh, you speak very well. Oh, what is that? You've been speaking. I'm, I'm speaking English with the Romanian version of interpretation. She speaks great English. But Tony, help me what I'm trying to say. Well, I, when I was a kid, I wanted to be three things, a priest, a teacher, and a psychiatrist. And mm -hmm. by the time I was a young adult, I discovered that if I was a director, I could have all three of those things. So every time I go to work, it's about discovery. Actually, I was just thinking about this because... Uh, you were saying about the play, how it enriches us. This play has got such intricate language. He has a way of being very human, being very comedic, being very dramatic, but also having a sort of heightened, elevated language. And I think for the first couple of weeks, it's been so hard to get comfortable with all these speeches. But as we do it, it takes on a whole other level. Mm -hmm. But it has been difficult to just learn these lines. People always say, how did you learn all those lines? And I always <laughs> laugh because I think, well, it's easy when you rehearse all day. But with these lines, it has not been easy. But it's worth it because it's such a rewarding experience to be able to go and do them full out in performance level and still be able to get all the values and the colors and the drama and, and all the intricacy of the language. You open November 30th, right? Uh, we begin performing November 30th. This is a limited run for just the purpose of exploring the play and the chance of performing in this production. That's why I hesitated when you said opening November 30th. It's hard to open when you're just starting to perform. But <laughs> we're opening and closing very quickly. And it's important for people to come during those three weeks because this is all we can give them at this point. Now, for each of the three of you, uh, in relation to kind of the theme of the play, in, in real life, what is the most mundane aspect of the business that you hate oh, that, having uh, to take care of the most? 
I love, for me, I love the art. I love the creation. I love the wonderful people that you get to have relationships with. To me, that's the most important thing, the relationship with people, which happens like so fast because you don't have all the time like you do in real life. So you have to fall in love with the person in like five minutes, you know, after you met them. And I love that. I think it's so amazing and it excites me. What I don't like, what I hate, and sometimes I, I feel like I can't do this. I'm not meant to do this. The, the other part, the auditioning, people have to judge who you are and what you do in those five minutes. Like the audition part of it, getting a job, I am so bad at it. And I don't even know. Like with Tony, I was so shocked when he cast me in this because I have such a difficult time auditioning that when I go in, I go in with a already negative, I'm not going to get it. And that's how my audition turns out. So when Tony told me that he cast me in this, I was like, why? I have an accent. Why would you even? Because I already have that in my mind. Like, I'm now going to be cast because I speak funny, you know. So to me, it's auditioning and the business part, having to prove yourself, I guess. People having to say, well, I like you or I don't. You know, I take it personal. <laughs> and done. But I've been doing it for probably 25 to 30 years, and I've just had a really incredible time. But I'll tell you, I've just recently moved back to New York. I sort of had an identity crisis going back and forth between New York and L.A. for a number of years. And about a year and a half ago, I, I really committed to being in New York. And I'm telling you, going up and down subway steps, I go to so many different auditions and bookings and rehearsals and meetings every day that by the end of the day, I'm just completely exhausted. It's a lot different because in New York, you really have to, you really get a lot of exercise in this city. So it's fun and everything, but it can be a little exhausting. Yeah. Tony? Well, for me, I uh, just love the theater. I've had so many opportunities to leave it. I've been given every chance a director could be given to run a theater many times all over America. I've been given a lot of chances in television. I really have been given a lot of opportunities to walk out of the theater, and I've never been able to do it. Every attempt I ever made to try, I found myself unhappy. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the theater, even when I'm working under very bad circumstances and maybe for nothing, you know, and challenging obstacles and whatever, I have a very good time. I love to create a show. I love it. I love people. Mia says that it was extraordinary for me to cast her. I was so thrilled when she came into audition. I was, first of all, she's very gifted. Second of all, I love her accent, and I wish the show had more variety, not less. The play obligates you to, you know, certain things, and I don't defy a play. But I just love the process so much, mm -hmm. and we're having a wonderful process. And Don and I have worked many times together. And that's nice, too, when you begin developing ongoing uh, work over the years. All right, so Art People starts November 30th. Yes. It runs through the 17th. It's a wonderful theater, the Players Theater mm -hmm. on 115 McDougal. Tickets can be found on www.theatermania.com. All right, well, thank you so much, and wish you the best of luck as you finish getting ready for your opening. Thank well, you, thanks. Michael. Thank you so much. Andrea Marcovici is certainly one of the most enduring, talented, and all-around fantastic names in the cabaret scene, and she has graced us with her presence here at Broadway Bullet Studios. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you for inviting me to your pod. <laughs> <laughs>
I wanted to open up by saying that, you know, before we watched your show, I hadn't been to a lot of the real high-end cabaret gigs, and I was talking to my girlfriend right before the show started, telling her with all these thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of fantastic singers that, you know, are here in New York, what is it that separates them out and moves them to the head of the pack? And over the course of your show, you truly showed what it takes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much. I've been very lucky, and I've worked very hard, to be honest. It took an enormous amount of work and devotion and continuity and to have the pleasure of one place to keep bringing it back to and then the other places that I go to constantly in order to do the, the workshops and to do the research. And if I didn't have such loyal fans, I wouldn't have been able to develop. This was my 20th anniversary season at the Algonquin, and I never dreamed that could happen. We have a couple things to talk about over the course of this interview. Um, mm-hmm. First thing is maybe just a short synopsis of what this current cabaret show that you're doing at the Algonquin is. This show is called I'm Feeling Like a Million, and it's a tribute to the incomparable Hildegard. But I'm fully aware that not a lot of people remember necessarily who Hildegard was. She was one of the greatest nightclub singers who ever lived. She only recently died. She was 99 and a half years old. Her last show she did when she was was 92 years old. She called it 92 and I'm not through. She was most famous in the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s. The quickest thing to say is she was the one with the gloves. She sang, darling, je vous aime beaucoup, je ne sais pas what to do. She spoke with a slightly continental accent, even though she came from Milwaukee, which is so goofy. She sang, I'll be seeing you, Lily Marlene, the last time I saw Paris, j'attendrai le jour et la nuit, And she was known mostly for the Persian room of the Plaza Hotel. You thought the Algonquin was upscale? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) The Persian room was a huge nightclub with a dance floor and a big band and stars in the ceiling. And she just was from another era that was so grand. And she continued to work all the way into her 90s. And people in the know still remember Hildegard, but I was afraid she was getting lost. And just recently, especially for your listeners, this is so important, if they go on Amazon or on iTunes as well, I'm sure, they can now get her and they can hear her from the 1930s. And these recordings are what attracted me to doing a whole show about her because her songs are delicious. They're cute, they're funny, they're bouncy, and the arrangements are wonderful. They were all done in England in the 1930s. How much research do you generally do when you're putting together your shows? A year's worth of research for every show that I do. And in this case, it was very difficult because there was no decent biography of Hildegard. She herself wrote a book called Over 50, So What? And it's full of lies. So there's nothing useful in it whatsoever. (laughs) It's all about leg lifts and what to eat and what not to eat and how to iron your face with a hot iron to get the moisturizer to go in. It's just a silly book. But I did go on eBay a lot, and I was able to get clippings from her life by going to collectors and to get old articles things that were printed years and years and years ago, and I was able to interview people. It's a lot easier if you do your research on Fred Astaire. I have a whole show about Fred Astaire. Or Frank Lesser, there are books written about him. Or Cole Porter, there were 10 books about Cole Porter. When I did the Noel Coward or the Jerome Kern or the Irving Berlin, that was easier. When there's so much material on those composers, how much do you feel like you're looking hard for that nugget that people haven't found? 
Very much so. You're looking for the obscure song. I have a friend in San Francisco, Bob Grimes. He's the collector that I go to for that unknown song, the one that nobody else has. The nuggets come from reading every single biography until you find a story that you think is worthwhile. It's also how I tell the stories. See, sometimes the story is known, but I have a little trick of putting it into the present tense. You were there the other night creating the story about the King of Sweden and actually making a King of Sweden happen in the room by using a gentleman in the audience. Those things bring it to life in a way that takes it out of a classroom feeling and makes it more immediate. But the research is, I'm a Catholic girl from way back. I like to underline books. I, I really like all that stuff. One thing that struck me that, that I think a lot of aspiring cabaret and, and theater singers, they think the right thing to do is to just show off and sing as loud and high as possible the whole way through. And, mm -hmm. and that's really all there is to it. That particular American Idol kind of singing is a pernicious habit now because I must say that a lot of people get a lot of compliments and they get a lot of work from it. I do feel that it's dangerous for the voice. I do feel it's repetitive and at some point quite tedious because so many voices are starting to sound exactly alike. It also doesn't have anything to do with the song. One of the last people who expressed themselves with those riffing styles and it came from their soul was Aretha Franklin because that soul made her create those riffs. Stevie Wonder, when he creates a riff, it comes from the depths of his being. Now we have a lot of riffing going on because people think that's the way to sing. It has nothing whatsoever to do with their own invention. The songs really don't require it. In, if anything, it obfuscates the meaning of the song. When you're dealing with an American popular song from way back, there's no place for that kind of sound. And indeed, in a cabaret, which is so intimate, we really don't want you to scream at us. It would be out of place. So the style of singing that's the most popular in cabaret singing is actually rather quiet. It's rather tender. It's rather delicate singing. My singing has always been on the softer side. Even when maybe 20 years ago I could really belt out louder than I do now, I wouldn't have chosen to do so. I'm also following the song. What does the song require of me? What are the words? You see, a, a cabaret singer follows the lyric first, not the music first. Jazz singers follow the rhythm first and the music first and the lyric last, in my opinion. They may be listening to the sound of their own voices and how they can change that melody the most possible. A cabaret singer listens to that lyric. How can we tell you the story of that song in a way that's going to be the deepest and the most emotive possibly? Which is why my renditions of songs sound brand new, and yet I'm actually returning it to the original intention of the author, because I want to tell you that story. And that's why my songs sound a little softer, quieter, gentler, it isn't a night about the voice, that's for sure. My greatest hero in cabaret was Mabel Mercer, and Mabel Mercer was singing way into her 80s, and she didn't have a lot of voice at the end of her career, but she was compared to a Shakespearean actress singing because of the way she could emote within her songs, and I'd like to follow that tradition. Yes, now I'm guessing you had quite a musical upbringing. The night I attended your show, I had the pleasure of seeing your mother take the stage for a very fantastic number. And I, This is true. My mother was a singer in the 1940s, 
mostly a torch singer. So my typical joke is that my mother's idea of a lullaby was stormy weather, which is true. I grew up hearing nothing but sad songs around the house. My mother was always rehearsing for something. She gave up her career when she married my father, but she continued to go to music lessons, which meant that I was dragged to these lovely singing lessons in the Carnegie Hall Studios, which is where she went. And in the summers at our country house, my mother gave musicales, as it were, in this country club thing that we belonged to. And I always heard my mother singing. But even more so, my father was a dancer. As a doctor coming over from Europe, he had danced beautifully, and he was very well known in New York City Cafe Society as a waltzer. He was called the waltzing doctor. So there was a lot of dancing and waltzing and carrying on <laughs> in this house. And I was raised with this music. I was raised on Billie Holiday, Judy Garland. I was raised with Fred Astaire pictures. I was raised with a glorious American popular songbook around me at all times. And my mother still sings. At 87 years old, my mother gets up every Thursday at the Algonquin when I'm in residence. I hope she doesn't do it when I'm not there. She gets up <laughs> every Thursday, and she wows the crowd. She just wows She still got a, a great voice on her. Doesn't she? She's done Carnegie Hall and Town Hall. She's gone to Florida with me. She's gone to Palm Springs. She's gone to San Francisco. All the venues that I know, she has also joined me on. I really like the fact that you seem to champion new writers as well as yes. the old classics. Yes, I try to do that as much as possible. I once did an entire album called New Words, in which it was entirely modern. It's a little difficult because people at the Algonquin don't come to me for new writers. They get a little nervous if they don't know the songs. They want more familiar. They want the old traditional songs. But in the spring of every year now, when I do a show, Just Love, by request, I insist on new writers. And I'm a big champion of Craig Carnelia, John Bucchino, Tom Tosin, David Israel, Christine Lavin, Julie Gold. I haven't sung him yet, but Jason Robert Brown is amazing. Adam Gettle, I've known since he was a baby. There are many new people coming up that are great. Zena Goldrich and Marcy Heisler nowadays, even though they haven't had a Broadway show yet, you can't go into a nightclub in New York and not hear a song by Zena Goldrich and Marcy Heisler. They are that funny. They are that great. So there's a big, flourishing new writer scene. And we must remember that in the 1950s, when Mabel was singing and Portia Nelson was singing and all of these great cabaret stars were singing, they were introducing songs night after night by Cy Coleman, who was a baby. Nobody knew who he was. Alec Wilder. And they were new writers then. So if we don't do what those people did then, we won't be giving a chance to the more contemporary writers. It's absolutely a necessity that we continue to do this. At this point, I think it's good to maybe take a short break and hear one of these new writers oh, off, yes. this off is, your brand new Christmas CD. This is a good story. This is Adrian Russ and Brad Ellis, and I was getting ready to do a Christmas record and a very different style of one because I myself have a tendency to get a little blue around Christmas, so I wanted a Christmas record that was gentle and not too clangy, no forced gaiety. And in came this gorgeous song called The Gift, and my musical director was scented. We had closed ranks on the record. We had made all the decisions. We were ready to go into the studio, and he said, I think we ought to listen to this 
new song by Brad Ellis and Adrian Russ. Maybe we'll want to put it on the album. And I was hesitant to open my ears to something new, but here it was. We had to do it. Thinking of you tonight While the fire in the hearth burns bright And the snow outside twinkles the light from the moon Thought I'd call you and just say hi as the carolers wandered by Can you hear them sing your favorite Christmas tune? Santa stopped by to clear off his sleigh. But the gift that I'd love to see is one that I wish could be holding you close to me. certainly fair to say that there's very few people currently who have had the success in a cabaret career that you have, and I think it's equally as interesting to talk about some of the different business things and career things and the way aspiring cabaret singers can further their career and for fans of the cabaret scene to learn the mm -hmm. kind of the behind-the-scenes mechanisms. One of the things that I did that was very important is I was resolute in my being consistent with one club in the very beginning, and that is the Gardenia in Hollywood, in, uh, right on Santa Monica at La Brea. When I first began, I had a crazy thing that I did. Every Saturday night at midnight, I was at the same place for years, years. And everyone knew where to find me, Saturday night at midnight. And then I went up to the plush room, and once I got some reviews up there, I came into the Algonquin. After I got the Algonquin, I never wavered. I was invited to other places. I was invited to sing at other nightclubs. But I was loyal to the Algonquin, and they were loyal to me. And I have other people that I mentor, and when they ask me if they have a nightclub that they're at, that they've gotten reviewed at, I say, stay put, 
because the audience needs to develop a relationship with you. Not only you as an artist, but you in that venue. They get used to a picture of you in that venue. And they want to be able to know that that's where they can call, when is this artist returning to that venue? So that's one of the things that I recommend very strongly. Of course, for young people, getting an accompanist that you can trust and love and relate to somebody who understands you and breathes with you the way Shelley Markham breathes with me, that's very important. Having you know, the development of your style and I've been very lucky, very lucky with the venues around the country that have stayed loyal to me as well. The Plush Room in San Francisco. I now have another venue in New Orleans called the Chat Noir where I've been invited back again and again. I've never been to Davenport's, but I know it's been instrumental in the career of Karen Mason, for instance, and she's known at Davenport. She always goes back. The colony down in Palm Beach is being very loyal to my protege, Maud Maggart. And these are places that are developing the careers of cabaret artists, much the way impresarios used to develop the careers of cabaret artists. Now, how important is landing the right venue for moving your career into a touring circuit? Well, I can't be coy about it. To be at the Algonquin is very important, and a lot of people lately have used it solely as a launching pad. I mean, Jamie Cullum has never come back. Jane Monheit did two seasons and never returned. Same with Diana Krall, and now, of course, Harry Connick as well. They've all launched their careers at the Algonquin and never returned. But the cabaret star that they might give a chance to is investing in herself at the Algonquin. And if she's lucky enough to get a booking and a review at the Algonquin, then it's up to her to have the help, as I do right now with a brilliant publicist like Miller Wright, to run with that. I believe that after my protege, Maud Maggart, was able to secure the Algonquin booking for her, that pretty much made her go national. And from that point on, she has national bookings. It is really the feather in your cap. It's true. But the Metropolitan Room is doing fantastically well for its artists, and they're getting very involved in helping sustain and maintain careers as well. Are there other venues around the United States that also are launching pads for people to then head out national? I think the Plush Room is very good. You get reviews in the Plush Room, and it helps a lot. That's San Francisco. That is a really great room, (laughs) a beautiful room, and well worth the trip, because since San Francisco is such a great destination for tourism, a trip to the Plush Room is always a great idea. Now, I understand you also do teaching and classes for aspiring cabaret performers. I do. I'm very proud of that now. This will be my third or fourth year, I believe, at Steamboat Springs, Colorado. The actual school is called the Perry Mansfield School, and it's a school for young kids during the summer who want to study dance, equestrian, (laughs) and voice, and poetry and writing, creative writing. And then at the end of the 